While our culture often places value on people based on their usefulness to us, Scripture teaches that we are valuable because each of us is made in God's image. As Christians, this means that we should view children and those with special needs differently than the world. However, because Scripture also teaches that we are born in sin and stand guilty before God, many Christians are still left wondering what happens after death to infants, young children, and those with special needs. Do they go to heaven? Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. And as always, you can find thousands of more free gospel-centered resources at our website, Radical.net. And in today's message from Colossians chapter 1, David Platt points us to the character of God and the truths of Scripture in order to find hope for these difficult questions. We can trust in the one who always does what is good and just. So here's David with a sermon titled, Jesus children and special needs from Colossians chapter 1. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, you can look on with or you can pull one out from in between the seats. Let me invite you to open with me to Colossians chapter 1, not Philippians chapter 4. So if you look on the back of the bulletin you may have received when you came in, you'll see Philippians 4 and a page full of notes on Jesus and anxiety. That was the plan for our time together today until a matter of hours ago when we came to Colossians 1 in our Bible reading plan and I decided to go in a totally different direction. So I look forward, Lord willing, to diving at some point into Philippians 4 and the topic of anxiety, which I'm convinced is much needed. But based on some unique dynamics, this particular Sunday, I believe... God is leading us in a different direction. So here at Tyson's, as you heard, also at PW, uh, one of our other campuses, some of our participants in Access Ministry have helped lead and worshiped today. Across all of our campuses, including here, ministry to children and families with special needs is a high priority. And last Sunday brought up some questions about children and adults with special needs that I heard from many people, and I believe those questions are really important. So if you weren't here last week, we asked the question, what happens to people who never hear about Jesus? And we saw that people can't go to heaven if they don't hear the gospel, the good news of how Jesus died for their sins. And as a result, hundreds of people stood in this room across all of our campuses and said, I believe God may be leading me to leave here and move to unreached parts of the world. It was an awesome day, and we have started a process of following up with every single one of those people. But whenever this question about what happens to people who never hear about Jesus comes up, many people automatically wonder, well, what about babies or young children who die? Or what about people with intellectual disabilities who may not have the capacity to comprehend or respond to the gospel? And that's a really good question, particularly in light of so many people, even in our church, who have lost children or who have children with varying levels of intellectual disability. And much like we talked about last week, we don't have a place in the Bible where we can go that says, some of you may wonder this question. Well, here's the answer. But again, that doesn't mean the Bible is silent. And it just so happens that Colossians chapter one, which was in our Bible reading yesterday, contains powerful truths that apply to this question. And by the way, this question is not just important for those who've lost children or have special needs in their lives or families. Like this question is important for all of us because as we're about to see, the truths that answer this question hit at how every single one of us understands our lives in this world and in the world to come. Which is why at the end of our time together, I'm going to invite every single person in this room to respond to what God says. Some, many of you, I'm going to invite you to put your faith in Jesus today and or to be baptized. Like on the spot today, at the end of this gathering, we have shirts, we have shorts, we have towels for people today who have either never put your faith in Jesus to confess your faith in Jesus today or followers of Jesus who have 
never been baptized, I'm going to invite you to do that today. And for followers of Jesus who have been baptized, I'm going to invite you to respond in your life with urgency to what we're about to hear from God. So here's, here's how we're gonna go about this. We're gonna start with God's word in Colossians 1, and then I wanna share with you the first of three videos that I'm gonna show you today. The first is a story that Jill's house put together about Matt and Shannon McNeil and their daughter Waverly and their son Oliver. So Jill's house, as most, but I'm not gonna assume all of you know, is an amazing, powerful ministry that NBC started years ago right across the street here at Tyson's that is spreading in all kinds of places beyond here that provides respite care to children and families with intellectual disabilities. So we're gonna watch that first video and then begin to dive into five truths that the Bible teaches when it comes to Jesus, children, and special needs. And unfortunately, you don't have a lot of space in your notes for these truths, but hopefully you can find somewhere to write these down. So let's start where we need to start with God's word. Colossians chapter one, verse 15. This is talking about Jesus. The Bible says he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay, let's stop there for now. We'll pick back up in verse 24 in a minute. But let me introduce you to Matt and Shannon, Waverly and Oliver McNeil. Watch this with me. Parenting Waverly and Oliver is parenting a child who progresses so far and then just loses everything they've learned. almost like parenting a perpetual infant or toddler in many ways. Emotionally, the impact of San Filippo and a ultimately terminal diagnosis just changes over time. Boy, do two feet again. Where it's so acute and immediate when it first happens. Wash your hands. But then you have to continue to live and do things that normal people do in spite of the fact that you feel anything but normal. We are thankful for every day we can get at this point because that first day without them will be unbearable. Can you go say hello to Oliver? Say hi, Oliver. Hi. Say hi, Oliver. There you go. I think getting a diagnosis with San Filippo, it's a very strange grief process you go through. Are we going around the table? Are we going up on the table now? It was a death, but it was a death of your dreams that you have for your child. Yeah, you just sort of assume that those things will happen. There would be a wedding day and mm -hmm. walking down the aisle and graduation and yeah. sleepovers. And... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Say ma. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I know you can do it. Say, ma. Ma. San Filippo is a regressive disorder. What typically happens is it's a genetic condition. They're lacking an enzyme. That enzyme typically would break down a buildup, and instead, because they're lacking it, it builds up in their brain, and it causes brain damage. So kids with San Filippo will typically develop normally until the ages of probably around three or four is, is average, and then they start to plateau, and then they start to lose all their skills. In our lives, we really appreciate our friends who knew Waverly when she was little, as they knew her when she was running and singing and talking and telling stories and reading books. And she did all those things. We didn't want to risk it. One thing that we do have captured on video that's one of my most prized possessions, though, is the last time we really said mommy, which is really incredible. She hadn't said it for months, probably. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, she said it. And I grabbed the video camera and just kept saying it to her it over and over again. And she all of a sudden just turned her head and looked at me, and I got it. November 20th, 2009, I got a mommy. Good girl, baby girl. Uh, just to continue the story, both children have now died, uh, Waverly in 2015 and Oliver last year. Both their funerals were held here. And some of you might be thinking, I came to church to feel good, like to get away from the heaviness of this world. But I just wanna encourage you, like church is not some fake place where we pretend like everything's perfect in the world. That would not be real. Church is a community that comes together before God and we hear from him and we find in him a life and a joy and a peace that transcend the hurts and the heaviness of this world. So what does God say about Waverly and Oliver? What does God say about young children who die and about children or adults with intellectual disabilities that limit their capacity to understand God and his love in the gospel. Truth number one, the Bible teaches that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made by Jesus himself. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made by Jesus himself. Colossians 1, talking about Jesus, says he's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, which that can be confusing, but it basically means he's supreme over all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible. That pretty much covers it. It's everything, including you and me and every person in the world. The Bible teaches us from the beginning, from the first chapter, Genesis 1, 27, God created man and woman in his image, in his likeness. Psalm 139 says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My family and I are in the process of adoption right now, hoping to bring a little one, Lord willing, into our home soon. Uh, we don't know that child will be a boy or a girl. We don't know gender, we don't know name. And we got kind of tired of calling this child it or you know, that one. And so we decided to name this child for now and the name we gave him or her is Wonderfully Made. So we talk about and we pray for Wonderfully Made all the time. Now millions of people don't believe this is true 
Millions of people believe we are evolutionary products of time. Millions believe we are single-celled organisms run amok, cosmic accidents with no real rhyme or reason. Richard Dawkins, avowed atheist from Oxford, writes, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. What an empty worldview. What are you going to say to Matt and Shannon McNeil? Sorry, Waverly and Oliver were just dancing to the music of their DNA, and in the end, they just didn't get lucky. No. Over and against this atheistic view of life, the Bible says in Colossians 1, Psalm 8, and a host of other verses, that Waverly and Oliver are the crowning glory of creation through Christ. Even with all the struggles Waverly and Oliver experienced in their short lives, they were created by Jesus in the image of God himself. He knit them together and they were no accident. They were not the result of random processes. And even if their bodies didn't function in this way or that way, they were beautiful. They were wonderfully made. And by the way, so are you. There's not one person I'm speaking to right now who is not fearfully and wonderfully made by Jesus himself. You may not always feel beautiful, significant, or wonderful, but the king of all creation says you are. Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him, which leads to truth number two. Though the plan of our lives is different, the purpose of our lives is the same. Though the plan of our lives is different, the purpose of our lives is the same. We were all created by Jesus for Jesus. Isaiah 43, 7 says we were created by God for God. God tells Jeremiah before he was born, he was set apart and appointed for a great purpose. Jeremiah 1, 5. We exist for Jesus. And this truth encompasses all of us, including Waverly and Oliver. And part of their purpose was fulfilled on earth. And the rest, as we're about to see, will be fulfilled in heaven. And no one can even begin to estimate the magnitude of how they fulfill that purpose in either place. We have no idea all that God in his infinite wisdom set in motion through the life and death of those two precious kids. Amen. They were created to glorify God and they did for a number of years and they are today in ways that we cannot fathom. See this bed rock truth of the Bible. Nothing, absolutely nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Everything, everything exists to make the greatness of Jesus more fully known. You were created for the glory of Jesus and just because someone can't walk, talk, think, or act like you do does not mean they were created for any lesser purpose. Though the plan of our lives is different, the purpose of our lives is the same. You say, well, how can you believe in a God who creates people with such challenging needs in this world? And that's a good question. And one we'll come back to in the end. But before we even get there, we need to remember that when we ask this question, we are asking it from a very limited perspective. Because this world is not all there is. That leads to truth number three. The hope of Jesus guarantees that this fallen world is not the final word. The hope of Jesus guarantees that this fallen world is not the final word. So let's broaden out from Waverly and Oliver's story and so many other stories like theirs, and let's see the bigger story. For in the beginning of the bigger story, God created a perfect world with no sin, no evil, and no suffering. No natural disasters, no hurricanes or tornadoes or tsunamis, no moral disasters, no wars, murders, trafficking, 
no cancer, no tumors, no sickness, no disease, no pain. But we turned away from God in the beginning and every single one of us since then. We have all sinned against God and we are separated from God. We now live in a fallen world. Now, to be clear, the Bible does not teach that if someone has a special need or cancer or is hit by a hurricane, this happens because of sin in that person's life or a parent's life or anything along those lines. No, the Bible teaches that all of these things are ultimately the result of sin in a fallen world. But here's the good news of the Bible, and it's the best news in the whole world. Colossians 1.19, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, meaning God has not left us alone in this fallen world. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus is no mere man. He is God in the flesh. And why did he come? He came, verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Jesus came to reconcile this fallen world to God. And how did he do that? Into verse 20, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to live a life of no sin. And then even though he had no sin to pay any price for, he chose to suffer and die on a cross for sinners, for your sin and my sin. So that, verse 21, we who were once alienated from God can now be reconciled to God. This is the greatest news in all the world, no matter who you are or what you have done. You can be reconciled to God. Amen. The hope of the gospel, verse 23, is that through Jesus, God will one day reconcile all things to himself. Because through Jesus, sin has been conquered. Death has been defeated. He is alive. And one day he's coming back to usher in a new creation where there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, and no more special needs. Amen. This is the hope of Jesus. This fallen world is not the final word. Amen. People say, I look at stories of suffering and that's why I don't believe in God. How can you believe in God? And I say, how can I not? Do you think your atheistic worldview is better or truer that Waverly and Oliver and thousands of other kids like them? That's the final word for them. They didn't get lucky and that's too bad. And not just those with special needs, but in a world of full of evil and injustice. Did you hear Dawkins? There's no justice. There will be no justice. In the end, no purpose. Just blind, pitiless indifference. No, no, no. That is not true. And we all know it's not true. We all have a longing in us for this world with all of its evil and suffering to not be the final word. Why do we have that longing? Because God has put that longing in us and one day his justice and his mercy will reign. Ladies and gentlemen, sin and suffering will not have the last word. Jesus will have the last word. But, you say, that's our question. If people cannot come to God apart from faith in Jesus, which we looked at last week, and little children, and children and adults with intellectual disabilities who cannot comprehend what it means to have faith in Jesus, what does the Bible teach about them? And we always need to be careful to let God's word, not our circumstances, our thoughts, or our feelings, dictate what we believe so with that said, I want to give you three reasons based on God's word why I am confident that young children, as well as people who cannot intellectually comprehend the gospel, why children like Waverly and Oliver are safe in the arms of Jesus forever. The first reason is based on God's character revealed in his word, his goodness, his justice, and his mercy particularly when it comes to children and people with special needs. Genesis 18.25 makes clear that everything God does is good and just and right. That obviously doesn't mean that everyone goes to heaven because the Bible clearly teaches we have sin that separates us from God. All the things we looked at last week. We'll come back to this in a moment, but suffice to say at this point that God cares about children deeply. See Matthew 18? 
as well as people with special needs, see all over the gospel. And Jesus delights in showing his goodness to them and God is guaranteed to show his justice ultimately. It leads to a second reason why I believe they are with God in heaven because the Bible expresses confidence that believers will see young children after death. After losing his own young son, David worships God and says, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforts his wife with this hope. So the Bible itself expresses confidence and a comfort that parents who themselves are trusting in God's salvation will be with their children again. The final reason, I would say most important and clearest reason is because of how God judges people and how young children are judged differently than others. So at this point, some people start talking about an age of accountability, a certain age where a child becomes accountable before God for his or her sin. That's not what I'm talking about. In the exact chapters we looked at last week, Romans 1, 2, and 3, we saw that God holds people accountable for judgment before him based on a couple of criteria. First, based on an understanding of right and wrong and willful transgression against God, disobedience to God. Romans 2, 14 through 16 talks about how we have a moral law written on our hearts so that all people everywhere know good and evil, right and wrong. And as we've talked about, we sin and disobedience against God. However, you look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 34 through 39, and you see the Bible talking about little ones, your children who do not yet know good from bad. And you look at that instance in the Old Testament where the children in Deuteronomy were not judged for the disobedience of older Israelites in their day. And as a result, even though God had cursed the Israelites because of their disobedience, the children were able to enter into the promised land. So we see a distinction there. And then you think back to the second criteria that affects our judgment before God that we saw last week in Romans 1, 18 through 21, where we saw God has revealed his glory to all people through creation. We stand before him, the Bible says, with no excuse because all of us have rejected his glory. However, if a child or someone with an intellectual disability is unable to know and reject God's glory because they don't have the capacity to recognize and reject God's revelation in that way, then that would separate them from us. They are not without excuse, Romans 1.20, in the same way. And judgment is based on these things. The capacity to understand right and wrong willful transgression against God's law written on our hearts and the capacity to understand and reject God. And for those who don't have these capacities, they will not be judged in the same way we are judged. Now, that doesn't mean that people in this situation stand innocent before God. The Bible's clear that we all have a sinful nature. And like we saw last week, no one is innocent, Romans 3. None of us learns to sin all of us express the sinful nature inherent in us. And as a result, anyone who is saved from God's judgment is saved because of God's grace in Jesus. And that's what Colossians 1 is teaching. We can only be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus on the cross. So put all these truths together now. We realize God's word teaches that young children, people with severe intellectual disabilities who die, stand before God with a different measure of accountability. Yet they still need the grace and righteousness of Jesus. And based upon the goodness, mercy, and justice of God, we are confident that God, through Jesus, welcomes them into his arms for eternity which leads us to say with the confidence and comfort of David that Waverly and Oliver and so many like them are safe in the presence of God. And in the end, Jesus gets all glory for bringing them safely to him. All of that brings us back to our last point. The hope of Jesus guarantees that this final, this fallen world is not the final word. In other words, Waverly's story is not over. 
And Oliver's story is not over. And your child who died too young, their story is not over. But what about here on this earth? For the McNeils and others who are left with the pain of loss, or even the day-to-day-to-day challenges of living with special needs or caring for a child with special needs. And Colossians speaks to this as well. Truth number four, the glory of Jesus spreads through his joy and strength in the middle of suffering. The glory of Jesus spreads through his joy and strength in the middle of suffering. So we left off at Colossians 1.24. Let's pick back up there. The Bible says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. What a phrase. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Oh, there's so much the Bible's teaching here. And you see this truth that we've been talking about for weeks now, that Jesus died for you so that he might live in you. As a Christian, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And the picture here is that his glory in you spreads through the joy and the strength that he provides in the middle of suffering. Verse 24, with Christ in him, Paul says, I rejoice in suffering. Verse 29, Paul is struggling with all the energy, the strength of Christ powerfully working in him. So in suffering, the glory of Jesus is spreading through the joy and strength he gives. Now let's think about what this means practically and why this is so important. Because if you and I profess faith in Jesus and everything always goes well for us, then the world will not take much notice of that. The world will see us just like everybody else. What, you have all the prosperity and stuff of this world? You tack on Jesus on Sundays? Nice for you. But here's where things take a decidedly different turn. When things are not going well for you, when you or your family struggle with a special need and life is really hard and you're exhausted every single day, Yet in the middle of that struggle, in the middle of that suffering, you say, I have a supernatural joy, a supernatural strength that is otherworldly. That's when this world sits up and takes notice. There's a great hymn written by a woman years ago named Annie Johnston Flint. It says about God, he gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he adds his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day's half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's own giving has only begun. His love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives and gives and gives again. That hymn was not written by a woman who had it all in this world. It was written by a woman who was orphaned very early in life, crippled with rheumatoid arthritis. A woman who spent most of her life in bed, had eight pillows cushioning her body from head to toe because her body was covered with sores all those years. A woman who had lost control of her internal organs and a woman for whom cancer was sapping away her life. She writes, he gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. And his glory shines in the middle of suffering. And I just want to speak a word here to those with special needs, And those who care for children with special needs, 
especially after last week. So I've talked with some people either who have special needs or have children with special needs, and you want, like your heart's desire is to take the gospel to people who've never heard it, to the unreached. But you can't go and spread the gospel in that way because of those needs. And I just want to encourage you, even as you pray and you give for the gospel to go to the unreached, you are spreading the gospel with your testimony to the joy and strength of Jesus in ways far beyond what most will ever do. I just want to encourage you that the glory of Jesus is shining through you among the nations. Let me show you this second video. It's actually from a church where a friend of mine is pastor in Texas, the Austin Stone Community Church. And I just want you to hear a story of the glory of Jesus through the joy and strength he provides. In this instance, in the middle of cerebral palsy. Amen. So let me introduce you to Roger. Watch this with me. I have cerebral Living with cerebral palsy is definitely not easy. A lot of people don't understand cerebral palsy and they'll treat me different. A lot of people are either afraid of me or very uncomfortable to be around. And that hurts me because I want to be everybody's friend and I can't help the fact that I have CP. Some of the struggles that I face with CP is I got to do stuff that a normal person will never have to do, like call around on the carpet every day. Sometimes it wells on my body. I lose a control of my device that is called an on And I peck on the keys just like a chicken. I get around town in my electric wheelchair. It allows me freedom to get around on my own. The other thing is loneliness. I am my own gaiters in me with him love to my loneliness. But Jesus means everything to me. Without Jesus, I know I would have committed suicide by now because life is not what it without Jesus. All times come every day. Most of the time I try to knock them down because the gospel has changed my life in a great way that I will never ultimately know. Worship is my life. God has created me to worship and Jesus paid the ultimate price and if I don't totally worship him, it's like I don't appreciate it's dying from 
me. And it's so powerful. One day I will be in eternity with God. All this leads to truth number five. The gospel of Jesus compels us to trust him with humility and share him with urgency. Let me start with the end of this one. The gospel of Jesus compels us to share Jesus with urgency. So we've talked about young children, people who lack the intellectual capacity to understand the gospel, but I want to encourage you not to assume that just because someone has an intellectual disability, they cannot understand the gospel. Roger's life is a powerful reminder to us that there is capacity in so many people, even some you might not expect, to understand and believe the gospel in ways you haven't even begun to understand and believe the gospel. So share Jesus with urgency. And not just with people who have disabilities. They're not the only ones who need the gospel. Your coworker in your office needs the gospel. Your neighbor next door needs the gospel. And this fallen world is not the final word. The final word belongs to Jesus. And we are surrounded by people who have the capacity to receive or reject him, who will be accountable for receiving him. So share him now. Like this next week. And we should all be sharing Jesus or inviting people to come here and hear about Jesus every single week, like with urgency. We're not just kind of going to a church game. Like we kind of do this on Sundays, kind of move on. Like there's so much more at stake here. People all around us who need the gospel. And well, so do you. The gospel of Jesus compels us to trust Jesus with humility. There may be some of you who have up to this point in your life chosen not to believe in God or in Jesus, maybe in part because of suffering you see in the world. And you think, we've said it a few times today, I could never believe in a God who, who what? who would dare to disagree with you? Who would dare to do things that you cannot understand with your finite mind? Let me ask you, would you have thought to rescue sinful people in a fallen world by sending your son to take on human flesh? Would you have thought to enter creation in the form of a baby born in a feeding trough? Would you have thought to allow your creation to torture your son and nail him to a cross so that the very people who tortured him could have a way to be reconciled to you? I want to urge you today to lay aside your pride and to trust in Jesus with humility because these truths today are not just for children or for those with special needs. They are for you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by Jesus himself. You created by him, for him, yet you have sinned against him. Do not be so quick to look on pity with so, to look with pity on someone with this or that special need. What is worse? Roger's cerebral palsy that drives him to Jesus? Or your unbridled ambition for position and possessions in this world that is right now driving you away from Jesus? What is worse? Having Down syndrome in a way that leads you to humble trust in Jesus? or having perfect health that is leading you right now to pridefully ignore Jesus. 
on a day-by-day basis in your life. And the good news of the Bible is that though you have sinned against God, Jesus has made a way for you to be forgiven of all your sins and reconciled to God for all of eternity. And based on all we have seen today, I am confident that if Waverly, Oliver, or any other child or adult with severe intellectual disabilities who has died could speak from where they are, they would urge you right now to trust in Jesus with humility, with all your heart. To trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins with the capacity you have. And if Roger were here right now, I am confident he would urge you not to trust in Jesus as a mere matter of religious formality. He would urge you to trust in Jesus as your life. And to confess that faith in Jesus publicly for all to hear and see. Which leads to our last video. I'm going to let it speak for itself. I wish everyone in this church could have seen firsthand the day when Marissa put on this shirt and was baptized in this room. So for those who were not able to see it live, I invite you to watch this with me now. Welcome Marissa to the baptism pool and she has asked that I read her testimony for her. At one point in my life, I hated going to church because it prevented me from spending quality time with my dad and I was usually shoved into a corner. This changed when my mom and I found NBC. Soon after, we started attending and met Diane Anderson, the director of Access at the time. She was waiting at the front door for another family, but they came in to me and said, can you come back with me? So I asked my mom if I could go with her to help in Access that day. Then Diane said, you really don't need to be in here, and invited me to go to junior high to participate with the rest of the kids my age. I was 13 years old. When NBC started to offer winter camp at at Rockbridge, I went because the church made sure that I had someone to go with me to help with my physical needs. That camp was life-changing for me. It was the first time I came into a body of believers and felt accepted. Like they actually wanted me there and with them, having fun, praying, worshiping, and hanging out together. Will Gaskins, the junior high pastor at the time, gave a talk for that first night asking, do you know where you will go if you were to die tonight? And for some reason, the way he asked it really hit me that night. I'd always believed in a higher power, but this was the first time I was offered a relationship with Jesus that was deeply personal. That night, I officially and knowingly gave my life to Jesus. Even though I had been born again, coming back from camp, things did not mean that life got easier. Being in a wheelchair alienated me from my classmates before. So sharing my love for Jesus with them now even more so alienated me more from them because they believed I couldn't mentally understand salvation. I really didn't have friends in school, but I had a community of believers at church who loved me and helped me to become more like Christ. I'm being baptized today because I want to obey the commandment Jesus gave to the disciples in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I know God is with me even to the end of the age. Marissa, based off of that profession of your faith, it is our privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit bearing you in the likeness of his death, raising you to the newness of life. Amen. Will you bow your heads with me? I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes just because I want to ask every single person in this room right now before God, right where you are sitting, have you humbly trusted in Jesus to reconcile you to God? Put aside this or that need in your mind, like the greatest need in every one of our lives to be reconciled to God. Have you humbly trusted in Jesus 
and not just going through some kind of Christian motion. Like, if you trusted in Jesus, is your life? And if not, today is the day to do that. Like, God has brought you here, and I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Right where you are sitting, just to say in your heart to God, just say to him, dear God, I know that I have sinned against you, that I need to be reconciled to you. And today, I am humbling myself before you, and I'm putting my trust in Jesus. Just say to God, please save me from my sins and reconcile me to relationship with you today and forever. Oh, with our heads still bowed, if you, if you just prayed that to God, I, I want to invite you to do something. Just across this room with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to invite you, if you just prayed and said, God, I want to be reconciled to you through faith in Jesus, would you just the picture of that, just raise your hand right where you are before God. Amen. Amen. Just all across this room, God, you see these hands, you see these hearts trusting in you for reconciliation to you. Just pray over them the truth, Romans 10, that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You reconcile all who humbly trust in Jesus. God, I pray that you would give them courage to celebrate life in Jesus today through baptism. Not as some effort to earn your favor, but as the first step of trusting in you and celebrating your grace. Oh God, we praise you. We praise you for your grace toward us in Jesus. We praise you for the way you've created us, fearfully, wonderfully made. We praise you that though we have sinned against you, you have sought us out. You've come to us. You've given us hope that transcends the hurt and heaviness of this world. So we pray that even now, in just a moment, you would give us courage all across this room to respond in obedience to what you were leading us to do. For some, many, to be baptized today. For those who have been baptized, to recommit our lives today to sharing Jesus with urgency. Amen. God, please don't let us keep this hope to ourselves. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. As always, if you'd like to download this sermon, watch the video, or even the free discussion questions that accompany every sermon, you can do that and more at our website, Radical.net. There you can find an abundance of resources on similar topics to today's sermon, like death, heaven, children, and parenting, and the grace and mercy of God. But that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, We'll see you there at Radical.net.